This morning's text comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. May God open up to us a new understanding of this word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And people, in Luke, it says, all the people, all the people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, that's snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Oh God, prepare in us the way of your coming. In this word proclaimed, but in our lives lived fully as your own in Christ's name. Amen. Today's passage reveals that you cannot get to Christmas to the baby Jesus without having to go through John the Baptist first, any more than a delivery person of, for Amazon delivering your whatever your average per day packages are can get past the Rottweiler who's chained in the front yard ready to, ready to attack you if you don't throw him a treat. The difference though is that the Rottweiler can't kill you, but after you get through with John, you feel like, feel like he has. There they were, all of the people, it says, all of the people in Jerusalem and, and Judea and around the Jordan River. It's a huge, huge space, all of the people we're going out to John in the wilderness to the Jordan River, way outside their comfort zones, outside their homes and cities through the rocky, dusty, viper 
snake-ridden landscape of the desert well, the, where the wild things are, hence the word wilderness and wild things. And those wild things were out there with John because John was one of them dressed in camel's hair. I don't see anybody with a camel's hair blazer on today. That was 40 years ago, if you remember. We all had to have a camel. That's not the kind of camel's hair John is dressed up in. But the pelt kind of camel, the pungent smelling carcass of a dead camel kind of of camel's hair, full full of all kinds of nasty little lice, buggy things crawling around in the matted fur, held together with a leather belt around his waist. You can just see him looking like some Halloween ghoul monster feasting on crispy locusts, caterpillars dipped in wild honey. And they all went out there. They all went out there to him. You had to be desperate to do that, to cross over through the wilderness. It was a long hike to cross over to the wilderness to go see this crazy man dressed up like some ancient Israeli prophet, Isaiah maybe, Jeremiah or Amos. And when you get there, you find out that there's a huge line and you have to stand in the line as long as a Chick-fil-A at noon. (laughs) Or any time, really. And when it's your turn to finally get baptized, you step down into that muddy little Jordan River, it's more like a big creek, and John asks your name, Billy Bob, and what you need to confess. And you say, well, where do I start? And John says, no matter, God knows, that's enough. Then, instead of just gently sprinkling a few drops of water on your pristine little head like we do here with infant baptism and adult baptism, there's no gentle to it. He walks up behind you and he tells you to pinch your nose and then grabs you by the shoulders and slams you back into the water and holds you down into the water so long you felt like you feel like you have been waterboarded, that you were right next to death. There's a lot of, there are a lot of scholars who say that was the baptism John would, would hold you down till you're almost going to drown and then raise you up out of those waters. Then you know what it means to die and experience new life. When Jesus went down into those waters and he came up, he experienced the Spirit of God coming on him like a dove and hearing God say to him, this is my beloved son. That mystical experience that often comes in those kinds of drastic moments between death and life. That's what John is saying baptism is like. And you know what? So does Paul in Romans. We are dying to our old selves and being born again in the life of Christ. He yanks us up out of the abyss, sputtering and crying and taking our first new breath like an infant coming out of the womb. and probably crying as well to know that we have been reborn and delivered out of the waters of chaos, forgiven and cleansed. Did I say they all went out there? 
Maybe they were just desperate. For what? Maybe they were just desperate for FOMO, which my kids say means fear of missing out. They went out there because they'd heard everybody else was going out there and doing it. They didn't want to be left alone. They wanted to be part of the crowd. Hey, Dad, can I truck on over to the Grateful Dead concert this weekend? No, son. You're only eight years old. I tell you what, I'll come back and tell you how good it was when I get home. There was more to it than just FOMO. Maybe they trekked out there because they were desperately in need of healing and redemption and that they were hurting so bad they didn't have any other choice. Like at a 12-step meeting where those gathered are sick and tired of being sick and tired. You go there looking for hope, for community, for forgiveness, for redemption, for a safe place to confess your sins, where you can find forgiveness and even the strength to repent, to start over one more day at a time. By the time you work through the 12 steps for however long it takes, you start over again. As their slogan says, began again and again and again. And what you find there when you go is that it is not about you, although you stands up and confesses what you cannot beat on your own. It is not about you, but it is about finding yourself with us, with the we-ness and the community gathered there. It is about the true selves being exposed and completely vulnerable, finding their Embrace, love, support, and inclusion. Doesn't matter what tribe you're from, you're included. Doesn't matter your gender, your race, your preference, your religion, your age, your income level, your status, you're included. And all of those people are there. A tribe welcomes you, this tribe of hurting people welcomes you, and because we are willing to confess what we need to be healed from and willing to try day by day to repent, we find ourselves with a new identity in a tribe that listens to and tries to live by a higher power. Sounds pretty much kind of like what I think church should be. I'm not sure we need to stand up in front of each other like in worship and share all of those secrets. But we share them with God, or at least God knows them. And no matter how much garbage we come with and we bring in here and the trail of debris that we've left behind us in our lives, we can come in bringing that here and finding here redemption and forgiveness and comfort and the power of a new life. We can find here a tribe that reminds us that we have been forgiven and washed clean in our baptism like 
a $200 detail job on your old Honda Accord, all the dirt and dead things embedded, embedded on the hood and soul of your psyche have been washed away, cleaned by the hand of God's redemptive grace. That metaphor is too yucky for you. How about this? You come and you find yourselves being given the opportunity to reformat, to be reformatted, which is what you do when you sell your computer or you give it away. You wash it clean of all the data. And that means both the good data and the malware that it's found its way in. All of it washed clean in these, in these moments of baptismal reality. Paul in Galatians says, so in Christ, this is what it says, in Christ you are all now children of God. Through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have put Christ's clothes on yourselves. Therefore there is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave or free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. I think that what they, we are desperate for is to understand what it means to be in communion with each other, to be made all one with each other, back in relationship with each other and with God, to be made one with God again in union, communion, to be made one with each other in communion, to be made one in ourselves because we are as fractured as a broken bottle of glass. The thing, that, the thing that John did not like, however, were the religious leaders who showed up taking names and watching what they would later say was heresy. Heresy because John just let everybody come. All they had to do was come. No status. They didn't have to be Jewish. They could be anything. None of that. They were all invited. The religious leaders hated it. They were heresy seekers. They would make him pay, of course, later. John says to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? You produce fruit worthy of your repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, or we have been circumcised. I tell you, out of these thousands and millions of stones scattered around this desert ground, out of them, God can use them and just raise up all the children of Abraham God wants. Being a child of Abraham doesn't mean squat. Instead, repent of your religious self-righteousness and exclusion for the axe is already at the foot of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit, that is, embrace, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Ouch. John gave them hell because he knew about religious hierarchy and self-righteousness and how destructive it is. He saw it in the temples and Later, we see it in the churches. Those of us who stand up in our perfect little righteous way and decide who's going to be in 
and who's going to be out. Usually it has some patriarchy connected to it. Only men are in. Usually it's corrupt, of course. The prophets in the Old Testament proclaimed over and over again against this in the synagogue and temple. That's why they proclaimed what they did. The coming end of the world is coming because we, you, the leaders, are not acting with acts of justice and righteousness. John also knew that he was pointing to a new world order that was about to break in that would change it all. A new way that would change all the old ways of living, trying to live by the law. A new way that proclaimed instead God's way of grace. He said, I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me who's more powerful than I, and his sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's one coming. There's one coming that no roof can hold out. There is no, there's one coming that no building with, with stones as wide as this communion table can hold out. There is one coming that no person or army can hold out. That one coming is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And what he's coming to do is to proclaim a new life and a new breath and a passionate fire of God's so all-encompassing love only because God has chosen that every single one of us from beginning to end is God's own child made in God's image. Every single human being is made one as a child of God in God's image. That's who we are. You know, it's, it's a shame when we, when we come to church or wherever we go and we don't find this kind of community. Why does it take meeting in a room out of the way for 12-step programs to practice it, but we don't always? I'm not blaming this church. But I am blaming what we have done in the name of Jesus in our world and in our nation. Deciding who's going to be in and who's not. Deciding what political persuasion you need to practice and, who, and what one you can't. Whatever the case may be, I'm in, but they're not. John was clear, you vipers. You see, friends, this inclusion is ours. Ours to be received and used and practiced. And it's way greater than our inclusion in our particular family systems. I don't know about your family. I had a great family. I did. I mean, we weren't like Ozzie and Harriet kind of family. We had normal, you know, dysfunctional stuff. I won't go into details, but you know what I mean. Every family has a boatload of dysfunction. Any family that claims they don't is in complete denial. We carry that dysfunction through life. Generationally, we carry it through life. Addictions, 
abuse, deceit, anger, all passed down generationally. We carry it through life. We're, we're wounded. Families love us and care for us and wound us. But what John the Baptist is saying is made available to us is something much bigger than our family system. John is saying we are given instead a communion, a fellowship, a community where blood is not greater than water, but water is greater than blood. And if we're able to claim that, to own it day by day, we will discover that I am fully a child of God and so are you and you and you and you. My goodness. You ever notice how African-American people say goodbye to each other? They say, have a blessed day. I don't know exactly what that means except to say that they are saying you're a child of God and you deserve a blessed day. I started saying that to black people and they would always say, you too, brother, have a blessed day. And I always had this sense that now we're in unity with each other just simply because we were willing to share that blessing. I have a friend named, I won't tell you his name, sorry. Almost slipped. He's a Presbyterian minister. Um, we were having lunch a while back, and he said to me as we were talking theology, he said, you know what I think the most radical, subversive thing about being a Christian is? I said, well, there's a lot. I always thought it was the preacher. <laughs> no, it's not the preaching, he said. The most radical, subversive thing about being a Christian is this thing called infant baptism. Why, why is that radical, I asked. I kind of had a notion of what he's going to say. He says, well, you know that I'm adopted. I said, yeah, I do know that. You've been open about that. And, and he said, I, I can only explain it in a paper I wrote, so I'll send it to you, which he did. And in the paper he tells about when he was a kid, he was rummaging around in a closet looking for something, and he came across a shoebox in the back. It wasn't put there to hide. It was just, it was just kind of made its way in the back. And, and he, curious, opened it up and outpoured a letter he said was a Pandora's box. It was a letter from the North Carolina Children's Home Society written in 1958. It's an adoption agency. And in the box were all the letters of correspondence between his parents and that agency that led to his adoption finally in 1962. Four years of negotiating and wrangling and letter writing and struggling before they finally got the permission to adopt my friend. For years, his parents worked hard on this. Before he had received his name, before he was born even, before he had been baptized, He knew that he was loved by how his parents, for four years, sought after him. Later, when he received his baptism and his name in a small Presbyterian church, even before he could say, I love you, he received the gift of that shoebox 
of love and grace that preceded any action on his part. Infants only want. Infants need. They do not do anything like I believe. They don't, well, I don't know what age. I, I have the sense that infants should be born at six months, but I, most people don't agree with me. <laughs> infants need. They're needy, right? They take. Yet none of that matters in infant baptism. It is none of that matters whether you give back or not. You are a child of God. With that shoebox experience, my friend came to see that all of God's kingdom is full of shoeboxes for all of God's children because we are all adopted. Meaning all of us, meaning all, everyone went out searching, searching, for that assurance, I think. God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Paul writes. And in that love, God makes his adoption available to all of us, not through our being baptized, but by our being loved, which baptism is a sign of. And by receiving the elements at the table of communion in union as the table is a sign of. Used to be you had to practice the law to get to the table. You know, Jesus shared communion with his disciples who all would desert him and, and who else? Who was there? Judas. Judas sat at table with Jesus to receive the broken loaf of bread and the cup handed out. Judas deserved it the least, but got it, even still. This is what we experience at this table. It used to be you had to, you had to in, in, in Scotland, you had to invite an elder into your house, and, and the elder would tell you whether you were going to be able to come to the table or not, and if you passed the, it's called fencing the table. If you, if you get through the fence... You can, they'll give you a token and you can get, you brood of vipers, John would say. Used to be you had to say you've been baptized to come to the table. Not anymore. I think all you need to come to the table is your awareness that you are hurting and broken and in need of grace. That's it. For in this table, we will find that grace through the communion with God, each other, and, our, and ourselves. My friend says, then every infant is baptized. Before they drip the water on them, they write, Steve, William Stephen, for you, Jesus Christ came into the world. For you, he lived and showed God's love. For you, he suffered the darkness of Calvary and cried at last, it is accomplished. For you, he triumphed over death and rose in newness of life. For you, he ascended to reign at God's right hand. All this he did for you, Steve, though you do not know it yet. And so the word of scripture is fulfilled. We love God because God loved us first. 
They all went out there because that is what all of us are most desperate to receive. As we come to the table, know that in this bread and wine we receive here the very gift of God's assurance that we are in communion, loved and forgiven, and we're given the power to start again. Repent. Amen.